more children are arrested in schools than anyone who was arrested on January 6th. Hi, and from The Griot, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer. And here at What's In It For Us, we are excited to celebrate LGBTQ plus Pride Month. For the entire month of June, we will be featuring brilliant guest co-hosts from the LGBTQ plus community. And today we have a special guest co-host. Hi, I'm Renee Graham, an opinion columnist and associate editor for the Boston Globe. And you're listening to What's In It For Us. I'm so excited to have you here, Renee. One, I think you're brilliant. Two, I could listen to you talk all day long. Three, I could read every column of yours. If that's the only thing I could ever read for the rest of my life, I'd be happy. So today we're going to discuss Merrick Garland and the hate crimes that are surging in the United States, Somerville, Massachusetts, and some of the policing that's going on in schools. And I can't wait to hear from you as uh, as someone who lives in Massachusetts, and I lived in Somerville uh, for several years during college. And also, lastly, GOP senators refusing to pass the January 6th commission. What say you? You know, that's something that's sticking in my mind, Christina. You know, we're, we're right at this moment where people are talking about the Tulsa race massacre, which is history that was buried for essentially 100 years. And here we have Republicans attempting to bury American history again because they know exactly how the truth is going to indict members of their own party. And but this time, citizens should not be accessories after the fact in pushing what happened away from light and accountability. So that's that's really what I've been thinking a lot about. Absolutely. And this and so many other things we'll be discussing today on What's In It For Us. So Renee, first things first, Naomi Osaka, are you a tennis fan? I am. Okay, so I love watching tennis and Naomi Osaka has sidled mental health uh, for not doing press at the 2021 French Open and people are losing it. Everyone's clutching their pearls and she's essentially saying that folks don't have regard for athletes' mental health and she's undertaking a lot and she's willing to pay the fines and she hopes that her fines go toward, you know, mental health um, processes and facilities but she is not doing press during such an important tournament because she has to protect her peace is what we've always, you know, sort of told black women that we must do. And she's putting her money where her mouth is and saying, I'm not doing press. What are you thinking about this stance that she's taking and uh, the punishment and the penalties that she's receiving for it? You know, it's funny that the first thing that popped into my head when she made the announcement was Marshawn Lynch during the 2015 Mm -hmm. Super Bowl. And he was at press day and all he kept saying was, I'm here so I won't get fined. I'm mm-hmm. just here so I won't get fined. And people took it as, oh, well, that's such bizarre and weird behavior. But he had had these sort of rows with the press over the years and he kind of had enough. But he sort of was trying to split the difference between, okay, I'm going to show up, but I'm not going to give you anything. And I understand that to a lot of people, this is part of the job, right? This is what you do. You play and you talk to the press afterwards. But those interviews are so unenlightening. And in a lot of cases, what they try to do is poke the weak spots, the soft Mm -hmm. spots. They want to get this sort of cheap emotion that's going to look good at the top of the the news. And let me be, actually, let me take that back. The emotion isn't cheap. The way the media will go about getting it is cheap. Mm. And so I'm completely on Osaka's side with this. And I say that as someone who's been a journalist for more than 30 years, there is nothing good about doing those interviews for her. You don't want to talk after you've lost. You're still trying to process what happened. 
So what is the point of literally going from the court backstage and sitting in a chair and having people ask you often pretty stupid questions? So mm-hmm. if this is about her mental health, there's simply no soundbite that's more important than her mental health. Well, and, and it should be noted, she's already been fined $15,000, but right. we also know that she led the charge with um, highlighting Black Lives Matter, you know, honoring Breonna Taylor, and she got a lot of questions about that. So we're asking her to be at work, to perform at the height of excellence, whilst also processing what's still going on with Black people being murdered uh, by the state. And so she's taking a stand and saying, you know, I'm choosing me over these questions that, as you said, if she loses, they want to get in her head. And we know that tennis is an incredibly mental game as much as it is a physical game. And she's choosing not to sort of feed the beast in a lot of ways. And I I think that um, it would be fascinating if uh, one of her (laughs) non-Black colleagues decided to take this stand and how we would uh, report on that and process uh, their, their right to sort of subject themselves to that type of behavior from journalists. Yeah, I I think there are probably a lot of other players in the circuit who feel exactly the way she does. Mm -hmm. Really do not want to do these post-game interviews, but they do because they feel like they have no choice. And I think, you know, I like that you brought up what Naomi Osaka did last year, where she was making wearing the mask of different uh, Black people who died from police violence, from George Floyd and Amon Aubrey and and so many others. She knows that that's still going to be with people, right? And that when she gets back there to have these to have these questions sort of fired at her, it's not just going to be about tennis. It's also going to be about race and racism. And again, the questions are not illuminating. It's not enlightening. That's not the venue for it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, she understands that this is going to be, you know, it's 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 just a continuum of this sort of antagonistic relationship that members of the sports media have with athletes of color. And good for her for saying, you know what? I'm not playing with it anymore. I'm not going to participate in this. You can find yeah. me if you want, but I'm, I'm not going to be part of this. That is so true. And I think the larger story about Black athletes and the press is something that we'll continue to think about and talk about here on What's In It For Us. So Renee Graham, I'm so glad you're here today because I really wanted to get your analysis on Attorney General Merrick Garland and his new designation of a civil and criminal coordinator to address hate crimes in local jurisdictions and improve communication with these local and state authorities since we've been seeing this rise uh, in hate crimes for the AAPI community. We've seen it with anti-Semitism. We've definitely seen it towards Latinx community, we've seen it towards immigrant communities, and obviously the long-standing hate crimes we've seen in Black communities. And we know that the FBI in 2019 recorded the highest number of hate crimes since 1991, and that's tallying over 7,300 criminal incidents and over 8,500 related offenses that were motivated by racial, ethnic, religious, or other biases. And we have to remember, that's just the people who had the courage to report what was going on. And not saying that those who who don't report don't have courage, but we know that there are a lot of hate crimes that happen in communities that people just never bother to go to the police, either because they they don't think that they'll get any traction or they won't be believed, or in some communities, they'll actually be penalized uh, in reporting something that's happened to them. And so a study that was released this month found that there was a 164% increase in reports of anti-Asian hate crimes in the first quarter of 2021 in 16 jurisdictions compared with the same period last year. Where are Where do you think the federal government can come in and really change 
what's been going on? Or do we think that um, it has to start with local uh, principalities? I mean, I think it has to be both. Mm -hmm. You know, what we've dealt with the last, say, five years, going back to 2016, we know that hate crimes began to increase significantly in this country with the candidacy of Donald Trump. That continued, the numbers went up and it paralleled his presidency, right? So, and, and we also at the same time, he wasn't doing anything about it. He was diminishing the services and the policies to help people who are victims of, of hate crimes, to make hate crimes its own character. He was taking away attention from that. So there's been this huge swell and now there's attention. I think it's good that Merrick Garland understands the urgency right now. It's not one of those, well, we're going to wait and see. And no, no, no. He knows the problem is happening right now. What's been really interesting is what's been happening to the AAPI uh, community. These crimes have been going on for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. It's one of the situations where, you know, they folks will say, we've known about this. Thank you for finally noticing. But now that it's been noticed, it needs to be addressed. The same thing with anti-Semitism, the same thing with what's happening in Latinx communities, certainly black people, but also the LGBTQ community. Mm. Last year, and I wrote about this, there were 38 murders of trans or gender non-conforming people, 30, at least 38. So far this year, and we're at the end of, of May, so far this year, 27 trans people or uh, gender non-conforming people have been murdered. So then again, the numbers are going up and they're not getting enough attention. I hope when uh, AG Garland is doing this, he is looking at what's happening in the LGBTQ plus community because it's a crisis, it is an absolute crisis. And so I think that there has to be a federal response, but locally you have to create situations where people feel it is safe to go to the police and something will be done. We've heard people in the AAPI committee say they haven't gone to police because they don't trust the police. There's certainly the same thing in trans communities and other communities as well. That's where it has to start on the local thing. There has to be this effort in municipalities to take this seriously and make people feel like their needs and their concerns are gonna be addressed. I think that's so important, Renee, that you mentioned the LGBTQ plus community when it comes to this type of soon to be legislation, but you know, mandate from Merrick Garland, because it reminds me of what we're going through in New York, where for our Pride Month parade, which is obviously one of the largest in the country, one of the oldest in the country, uh, members who have put together this parade have said that they don't want the NYPD um, to participate in the parade in any capacity, which is a huge statement to make because the coordinators of the parade have essentially said so many of the folks who will be celebrating during the parade feel terrorized by the NYPD. And therefore they are the antithesis of people, of the people who should be uh, even around the revelers uh, during this very important day. And so I, I definitely think that there has to be a larger conversation about how communities feel towards the police, because we know that so many black Americans won't go into a police station after mm -hmm. something's happened to them, because we've we've heard the stories, we've read the stories about what happens to black people who walk willingly into a police station and how they're accused of, of, of being a perpetrator. Well, that's the problem. You know, if, if something happens to you, who do you call? Mm -hmm. And who do you call if you don't trust the police? If you don't think the police care about what happened to you, or in some cases may find another way to victimize you because of who you are. And so, I really do understand, you know, people in New York who say, you know what, we don't want this sort of mob of cops, even if they're LGBTQ uh, 
community members marching in uniform and armed. Look, they're free to march. They can just do so with civilians and just be part of it. But I think this other thing is gonna be very triggering for a lot of people who've had some very difficult experiences with police. So this is why I think there also has to be that effort on the local level among mayors, among you know town managers, city managers to deal with the ways that police interact with these communities when hate crimes occur and also just their own biases that they bring in that's, that will exacerbate these hate crime issues. Mm -hmm. I think the local state federal partnership is, is a must if we're going to move this this ball down the court. Now, speaking of police and relationships with police, I really want to get your take on the Somerville Police Department as someone who lived in Somerville, Massachusetts. Um, Somerville is the second city in Massachusetts to remove policing from schools. And there's so many folks, uh, especially when I talk to my international friends, but also my white friends who didn't grow up in cities who cannot wrap their minds around the fact that there are actually police officers in schools, especially police officers in schools with very young children. And so we know that Somerville has voted unanimously to suspend the district's school police memorandum of understanding, and they're the second city to do so after Worcester, Massachusetts. And this is given the well-documented harm in having cops in schools and what it presents to children, especially children of color and children from immigrant families. And so I'm thinking of the story um, that was inspired by Flavia Perea, whose six-year-old Black and Latinx son had the police called on him uh, after his classmate reported to a teacher that he touched his bum. And so this is a six-year-old who was targeted by the Somerville police school system and essentially almost entered the school-to-prison pipeline. And so there's been a, a massive uproar about justice for Flavia campaign. And many of the schools um, are dealing with these formal and informal channels um, and these informal relationships between school principals and community police officers and having real detrimental effects on young children who are all of a sudden wrapped up in the criminal justice system. So as someone who lives in Boston slash, you know, larger Massachusetts, uh, where does this move you? You know, I think it's important for people to know that if not for last summer's protests and the continued work of a lot of activists and parents, this wouldn't have happened, I don't think, at this moment with the Somerville uh, School Committee, because what happened to Flavia Pereira's son happened in 2019. You know, it's not like it just happened. And so I think it was this sort of constant agitation on the part of activists and, and teachers and, and, and parents to do something about it. They listened. Um, you know, it's remarkable. If you, if you look at recent studies, something like 1.7 million children have police officers in their schools, but do not have nurses, guidance counselors, or- Band leaders, band art leaders. teachers, music right. instructors, nothing. Right. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm a, you know, a product of the New York City public schools. And when I was growing up, we had security in school. They were security guards. They were guys who worked in the community, who you saw at your church, you knew them by name, mm -hmm. you know? We didn't have police officers in our schools, but you know what we did have? We had nurses and we had guidance counselors and we had social workers in our schools. That's gone. Now you have police officers doing this and you can't get much more direct in the idea of a school to prison pipeline than having a police officer approach and essentially arrest a child. So what does that do to that six-year-old now? How does that kid feel about police? How does that kid feel about himself? You know, that, these are the questions. Police officers have no business being in schools. They don't make students safer. All they do is, I think, really is intimidate people and create deeper problems between 
communities and police. Do you think that this will spread to other smaller cities in Massachusetts to make it a larger statewide conversation? I certainly hope so. I mean, something has got to be done about this because we've seen the videos of children, as you mentioned, often black girls being body slammed by police, being handcuffed behind the back, being wrestled to the ground. It, it not just sends a message in terms of, of fear, but it says something about that child. Again, how that kid will always feel about themselves that they would treat it like a criminal. And we will see kids, and we know this happens disproportionately, of course, to black and brown children treated far more harshly than say Kyle Rittenhouse, who's alleged to have shot two men in Kenosha, Wisconsin last summer. You know, I mean, so that's the kind of thing. I'm really hoping that, and, and I think we need to be clear about the Somerville thing. It's a temporary suspension of those programs. Mm. The programs have not been removed. This, the school committee at some point later can decide to reinstate them, but they have to come up with a broader policy about the role and function of police in these schools. So it's, it's temporary, it's a moratorium. It's not a permanent removal. Which I think is so fascinating because you know how we view black and brown children uh, as prone to criminality, um, especially black girls, you know, treating them as grown grown people, um, mm -hmm. grown men in some ways, as you said, with the body slamming, it makes me think of January 6th, where we saw hundreds upon hundreds of white people, primarily young and old, but we even saw police officers who were saying, well, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to arrest them. You know, they had families. I didn't want to agitate them. They were just here, you know, and we saw what we saw, right? I mean, I have black friends who live in the district uh, who could not leave their homes, who couldn't go to doctor's appointments because their city was essentially under attack by white nationalists. Um, and so there was to be a creation of a bipartisan panel to study what actually happened on January 6th in the attack on the Capitol. Uh, and we know that the Senate voted 54 to 35, short of the 60 votes that were needed to consider this House passed bill that would have formed a 10 member commission evenly split between the two parties to really discuss and evaluate what happened on January 6, 2021, where it looked like our Democratic Republic was literally under threat. And so almost three dozen Republicans, you know, said that they, you know, would support it. And the senators uh, said it would be used against them politically. Obviously, they're following the mandate of Donald Trump, who told them that it's a Democratic trap. We know that since that riot, police officers have died. Uh, some have taken their own lives. Uh, and we know that far too many of the people who participated on January 6th are still walking free. And it's been citizens who have been able to contact the FBI. Some guy was bragging in the in the dentist's office about how he was there, right? right? So we're now we're trying to figure out who they are, but we know that if it were Black and Latinx folks, they would have found everyone by exactly. close of business on January 6th. So with this commission failing to pass the Senate, where do you think we, we go from here? I think it has to be with what House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said. They're still going to have a commission. Now, now the Republicans, the Republican senators in voting against it want to achieve two things. One, they just want this to go away. They want people to stop talking about January 6th, which is why it's become, you know, they were tourists and it was really fun and it was great. And why are you making a big deal out of this? They want it to go away. But the other part of it is that if there is a, a Democrat led commission, then they can point at it and say, well, this is obviously partisan politics at its worst. You know, this is 
a witch hunt. It's going to be all those things we heard the last four years of the Trump administration. They're going to keep putting that, and they're going to. The point is going to be to delegitimize anything that the Democrats do. But this is where the Democrats need to get a backbone and say, you know what? We tried to have a bipartisan commission. We went to you. We tried to do this, and you weren't interested. And the American people deserve to know. It, it, it's incumbent upon the Democrats to keep this on the front burner. This can't be allowed to be forgotten. We're talking about something that happened. It's not even quite five months yet. You know, and it's like, to me, it should be on the news every single night. It is appalling that, for instance, I would say more children are arrested in schools than anyone who was arrested on January 6th. The arrests are coming after. They weren't arresting anybody that day. So this is where the Democrats really need to get it together and they need to, you know, pull it together and hard. They can't sit back and do nothing. They can't sit back and say, well, we couldn't get what we wanted. No, they have to go forward. They have no choice. Right, because it's very clear that the Republicans will not stand up for the American people, will not stand up for American democracy. So Democrats cannot wait for Republicans to do the right thing, especially when we know that the threat on our democracy is so serious. This cannot go into that file when nobody knows about this for 50, 100, 150 years. It, that can't happen. This it, We're talking about our democracy and it was under attack and still under attack. That is true. Oh, Renee, time always flies whenever we're talking. Um, please tell us on what's in it for us. What is next for you? Columns. I'm working on my next goal of columns and there's, there's a lot going on locally. We've got uh, mayor's race. We've got the police department completely falling apart. Um, and nationally, there's a lot going on. So there's really no shortage of topics for me to be digging into. For the first time in Boston's history, no white men are running for mayor. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm speechless. I'm absolutely speechless. I'm speechless that Boston has a black female mayor. I honestly thought that I would see a unicorn and a polar bear get married before we would see a black female mayor. Um, <laughs> you are not the only one. <laughs> Well, Renee, I just want to thank you so much for coming on What's In It For Us. And please, please promise me you'll come back soon. Absolutely. I'm so excited to have been invited. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio, an executive produced by Blue Toulousma, and co-produced by Abdul Kadus, Antonio Thompson, and Taji Senior. Mm-hmm.